With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. All right, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little poverty, going to talk a little wealth generation, going to talk a little economics. We're going to go back to Australia. Another one of our great Young Voices contributor, uh, Zinyan Quack, is down there. She went to school in Sydney. She's originally from Singapore, uh, so we got a lot of ground to cover. How are you this morning for me, afternoon for you down under? How's things down there? Good evening. Um, things are fine. It's been raining for a month now, but otherwise... I think we're good. <laughs> yeah. One thing about uh, Australia, not so much, but Southeast Asia, places like that, if you've never gone, is you have this wonderful thing called monsoon season and it just rains for six weeks straight or whatever the case may be. So, um, oh, yeah, we love it here. It's like uh, a country of um, water park. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, though, we actually covered it a couple of days ago on the show. Uh, New South Wales and some other areas, some really devastating flooding has been going on down there, though, hasn't it? Yeah, but I reckon a lot of Aussies are actually enjoying it, <laughs> doing water sliding, things like that. <laughs> uh, when uh, It's kind of like when I lived in Vegas and you get the one week a year every spring where it rains for like three or four days straight, people just lose their minds. Okay, talking about people losing their minds, uh, there's, a, there's a thing going around on the internet. Stop me if you've heard this one before. It's become a meme. It's kind of a trope, if you will. Uh, the current uh, holder of this title is Elon Musk, but he's just the latest. I've heard this before with Bill Gates. I heard it years ago with uh, Bill Walton, who founded Walmart. Whoever the richest man in the world is or the richest person in the world, they get tagged with this. And it goes along the lines of, hey, how come he just doesn't write a check and end world poverty and end childhood hunger and end <laughs> insert whatever cause you want to end here? Uh, you study economics, you study poverty and stuff. That's not exactly how that works. Uh, the rich guy writing a big fat check isn't actually going to solve that problem, is it? No, it isn't. And I honestly feel bad for the richest men in the world all the time. It, um, it almost makes me not want to um, earn more money. But um, I think a lot of people have the misconception that throwing money at a problem will make it go away. But I think a lot of countries that um, high poverty rates, um, people are hungry. I think it's usually because um, the country doesn't have a political system that supports um, creating wealth. So in other words, they don't have capital capitalism. And when you're talking about generating wealth, uh, what are we actually talking about? Because people always kind of tag other things with poverty. They talk uh well, they don't have uh, the right education or they don't have the right job or they're not in the right uh, economic environment. What is it that actually seems to cause poverty? Now, we, we know some of this is, you know, economicals. There's things, you know, certain people, groups and minorities in certain places are oppressed, things like this. But what is it that keeps people from being able to generate that wealth, do you think? I think um, I think the number one um deterrence to um, generating wealth really is restrictive policies. Um, I think like countries in uh, Africa, 
you would um, they they do have natural resources, and you would think that the natural resources would make them wealthy, but it doesn't because um, innovation is simply not encouraged uh, in that country in those countries. Innovation uh, um, and there's like no, there's no there's there's no competition. There's no productivity. And a lot of laws and regulations simply um, discourage uh, create a wealth creation. And the other thing is, is something like a natural resource that doesn't actually mean wealth either, because as we've seen in places like Africa, like in the Middle East, I'm a West Virginian. We can talk about the coal industry. Uh, the thing that happens too often, though, is it becomes exploitative by a group, either the government or a corporation or whatever, and the people that actually live there don't actually benefit from it because the policies aren't designed to benefit from it. The policies are designed to just extract and move along. And, and that's something that's kind of globally universal, isn't it? Yes, that is very true. Um, I think see, a lot of countries, um, see, um, not having natural resources does not equate to wealth because um, resources are not useful. It's only useful if um, people, people learn to derive these natural resources and transform them into um, a product that, that is useful in our day-to-day -day lives. But because um, innovation, like I said before, um, it's not encouraged in these countries, uh, it's really difficult to turn these natural resources into a means of living. Yeah, and we're seeing it now. Uh, Jin Young Kwak is joining us down from Australia. Uh, we're seeing this a little bit out of the Russia situation where they're getting sanctioned. Uh, what happens with these autocratic dictatorial regimes is because of the corruption, because it's a dictatorship, it, it stifles innovation. It stifles creative freedom. So somewhere like Russia, we, we found out now once they start putting sanctions on, you know, the system collapses pretty quickly because it's all cronyism. It's not really a bottom up innovative society. Uh, how much does government pressure or a dictatorial pressure in these cases uh, talk about how that affects wealth generation? Because it'll affect a lot of wealth for a very, very small amount of people but it's because the system is just funneling money. It's not actually generating wealth in the way like an America does or like uh, the England and Europe of the last century did. These places where we've seen great uh, Japan of the last 60, 70 years, Germany, post-World War II, these places that really explode in economic growth and economic freedom, uh, you're not getting that in a dictatorship or an autocratic society because you just can't, can you? No, you just can't. And I think a really good example is China. Um, in the Mao Zedong era, there was a cultural um, uh, leap and um, it actually ended in um, a, 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 a huge massacre of innocent lives. And that's because of dictatorship. So um, China only started to become... Um, and uh, become an economic powerhouse when they started embracing um, parts of capitalism. And who knows how much they can achieve if they fully embrace um, the free market. But, um, but, but in recent news, we can see that um, the current uh, president, Xi Jinping, he is looking to tighten reins 
um, to he's hunting down on the the wealthy, the affluent, and I think it's only a matter of time before we see China experiencing what they experienced um, during Mao Zedong's era. Now the thing with China is they've got a built-in advantage on the world economic stage that's letting them kind of be the exception to the rule about that is because they have a workforce of three quarters of a billion people. They have a workforce of 750,000, 750 million people, excuse me, that are for all extensive purposes, pretty much under government control. They can control where they work, where they put their industry, these things. And that has been the real secret to the economic might of China. And I don't think people talk about it that a lot of it's just a sheer math problem of like, hey, we've got the biggest workforce in the world, and we also have complete and total control of that workforce. Yes, and um, it, it, is, it is simply quite, um, I think China itself is a very interesting topic. Um, but at the same time, I do think that uh, if, uh, if, 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 China, if the president of China were to um, uh, carry out even more restrictive policies, it will um the popul the, the sheer the sheer mass of the country will not be able to help um the economic progress. Um and I think we can see that from history. Um during Mao Zedong's era, there were there were a lot of people as well, but um they were, they were still living in poverty. And um you can see you can um when you look up uh a lot of people's um uh, people when you when you look when you look at people who have survived the Cultural Revolution, you will find that um, you will find that they have learned to embrace capitalism in Western countries, and it doesn't help that it doesn't help that uh, that China is is taking a step towards capitalism because they understand that um, it is only a matter of time before um, things go back to the way they were. Yeah, talking to our friend quack over in australia uh why is it i know we talk about the human rights issues china has currently today and we understand that their economic might is buying their excuses and ex and uh enabling them to do that because people don't want to you know they don't want to break up the cash cow that china is why isn't something you talked about the cultural revolution uh the great leap forward is quite possibly the greatest single human-caused disaster and extinction of people and life in the history of the world. And we don't really talk about that much. I know China censors that's a lot of it, but you're just talking about 20, 25 million people starving to death, basically, on purpose. Why do you think that's not more in our collective consciousness as the world, especially in the West, where we're usually pretty good with stuff like human rights, but we just never talk about the Great Leap Forward? And this is one of the most horrific things in all of human history. I think uh, I think perhaps a lot of countries I think a lot of countries don't want to jeopardize their economic ties with um, China because they understand that um, even just by the sheer mass of the country um, it, it, it it'll be quite difficult for us to for any countries to uh, to address this without uh, you know triggering the um, triggering China I I think. Uh, it was really interesting because I, I read a I've it was really it was it, I read an interesting article by the Prime Minister of Singapore Lee Sin Long, and he was uh, he he 
basically gave an in-depth um, uh, analysis on um, trade ties between Singapore, um, the US and China. And what he really strives for is um, the perfect balance between um, not agitating China while maintaining good ties with the states. And I think perhaps a lot of um, perhaps world, world leaders um, all over the world are trying to do the same thing. Um, and while this does make sense economically, it doesn't do anything to address um, uh, the problems that China faces. Yeah, talking to our friend Quack from over in Australia, we're going to take a quick break. We come back on Hertel, we're going to continue to talk about poverty and wealth generation, a little economics. Going to take a look at it from the perspective of immigration, two things that are always tied together is economics and immigration. We'll talk about that right after the break on Hertel. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're having a great talk with our friend uh, Zinian Quack from down in Australia. She's originally from Singapore, though, and that's kind of where we want to go with this conversation about economics and wealth generation and poverty. Uh, there's just no way to talk about the world economic story and not talk about immigration, uh, especially Western countries. Uh, you're living in Australia, which was a completely immigration other than the Aboriginal peoples heavy immigration. Uh, America, of course, is one of the great immigrant stories in all of human history. Why is it, just for people to understand, because immigration brings certain people's priors and they get their backs up a little bit, why is immigration and economics so inexorably linked together? I think, um, I think if when you look back at countries that are incredibly wealthy, you think of Australia, you think of Hong Kong, um, the states, of course, and Singapore, and these countries, uh, these countries are built by these countries as wealth are uh, created by immigrants by ex allowing immigrants to come in and be productive. So when so I think the the most common misconception um, of immigration is that um, uh, people strongly believe in the zero sum. Um, uh, theory, but that's not true. They believe there's a lot of people who are against immigration. Believe that um, they believe that once immigrants immigrants come in, they're gonna take uh, uh, this, the locals' jobs, but they don't. Um, and you can see that uh, you can you can you can tell that immigrants in fact boost productivity and economic growth. Um, when you look at exam when you look at um, examples of um, businessmen who um, who who come who are, who come from a different country wanting to open wanting to start their business in your country and that's when they bring about new jobs um, my favorite example is um, this this founder of a hot pot company from China um, Heidi Lau some of you may have heard of it um, he once he made it in China, he decided to migrate to Singapore. So now he's a Singaporean citizen. And while many are not quite receptive to immigrants coming, they cannot deny the fact that um, this businessman coming to Singapore um, drives business to um, Singapore. 
and um, it in turn creates jobs for Singaporeans, and this in turn boosts um, productivity, uh, lowers unemployment rate, and keeps us all happy. Yeah, here in the states, because of COVID, we have this really weird economic thing we've been talking about with our economic friends when they come on the program. Of we have a really low unemployment rate, and we have a labor shortage, which doesn't make sense in traditional economics. But then part of the story of that is when you go look at the data from the last two and a half years, immigration has pretty much stopped from a dead standstill, some of it from COVID, some of it from other reasons. And boy, howdy, wouldn't you know that those gap numbers almost dead line up with the immigration that stopped. And people, I think, maybe didn't realize that, oh, there's certain jobs that the immigrant classes come in and they fill these jobs and just nobody else is doing them. That really was a thing. And when COVID hit, all of a sudden people found that out. Uh, that, is, that is an unfortunate reality. I think um, I think the, the states, uh, I think I think the states was once um, a vibrant immig- uh, place for uh, what was I think the states was once very um, open to immigration. But that's not the case anymore. And it's the same in Australia. There are a lot of um, policies regarding immigration that deter, that deter, um, that really deter immigrants, foreign workers from from being productive. And um, I think an example from Australia is that at one point, um, uh, because of COVID, the Australian borders were not um, uh, open to those on bridging visas. And bridging visas is a type of visa that you you receive when you've applied for a work visa in Australia. So because a lot of these um, work visa applications have not been approved, a lot of people were um, working in working in Australia under a bridging visa. And because of the COVID, they went home. And um, when the government uh, didn't allow these people to come back in, um, they, they saw uh, this, they, they, they witnessed the disastrous um, uh, outcome, which is that they didn't realize um, the aged care sector actually comprised mainly of um, foreign workers. So when this happened, um, the the aged care sector um, uh, lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of its um, staff and employees, and um, this resulted in deaths that could have been prevented. But because of the government's um, rigid um, immigration policies, uh, I think we're beginning to see the economic consequences. Why do people talking to our friend Quack? Um, People just talk about immigrations with like borders and people coming and going. Really, the conversation with immigration, especially legal immigration, we're not talking about illegal immigration, which everybody agrees that you shouldn't have that. You have to have, you know, standards. You got to have voice. But when you're talking legal immigration, the part that has to be cohesive is some kind of a program, whether it's a visa program, a green card program, a sponsorship program, however you're going to do it. They have to have jobs and they have to have uh, inroads into the economy or the immigration is not going to work properly as far as economic development goes. You have countries like Australia, which are extremely restrictive with their visas. 
the EU is getting very restricted with their visas. We noticed the, the problem with the refugees with the Ukrainians is they're arguing over whether or not, you know, do they get a 90 day work permit or do they get a two year work exemption? You know, things like that's the discussion you have. Why in people's minds do they not put those two things together when really that should be the conversation when you're talking about legal immigration of not just the numbers you're letting in, but who you're letting in, which kind of skilled labor, which kind of skilled professionals, and how to get them into the workforce in a permanent way and fast track that process, because that's really what determines whether or not immigration is successful or not more than the other factors, doesn't it? Um, I think there are two possibilities. I think when policymakers uh, come up with uh, immigration policies that do not account for short-term, medium-term, long-term effects, um, you can you can you can wonder to yourself: Are they actually that short-sighted, or do they simply just not want immigration? I think that's the biggest question, and we'll never know because well, we're not the government. But I think that is a question that a lot of people need to think about. Governments usually government policies are usually reflective of. Um, their audience, which is us, the citizens. So, is it could be it could be due to um, general consensus in this in the public, or it could be it could just be like a big conspiracy. I think that's that's a really really big topic. Yeah, um, you are an immigrant from Singapore. Uh, obviously, uh, Singapore is dominated with concerns about China. I know it's a little bit different because of the treaties and the way it worked out. Does Singapore look at what's gone on in Hong Kong over the last 15, 20 years, and especially the last three years with a very wary eye? Is that something they're actively worried about? Because if I was them, I sure would be, but you're from there, you're on that side of the planet. You tell me, is how are they viewing uh, China and more specifically the Chinese Communist Party and the ruling party of China right now? Because you talked about it before, they're, they're, they're trying to find a balance uh, that balance is not just a political one. It's an existential threat kind of finding a balance, isn't it? I think um, this concerns, uh, this is a geopolitical concern of Singapore um, due to trade ties. And um, well, I'm going to be honest, I'm probably not the best person to consult um, on because I've been in Australia. I've been in Sydney for what, seven years now. But I do believe, I, I do understand um, Singapore's um, Political, uh, I, th- I, do, I do understand that um, Singapore likes to take on a more neutral stance. And um, I think Singapore, but I think, I think from what I can tell anyway, I think Singapore's um, strategy really is to maintain good, t- good relationship with China and to, um, of course, um, build up defense, while at the same time um, expressing um, expressing uh, the care for affected countries like Hong Kong. I think that's what Singapore is doing. And I, I think I, I do sort of agree with their take because it, it could be quite dangerous to take on China given their given their population. Singapore is a really small country um, with no natural resources. 
I think we're, I think Singapore, I think we're quite limited in what we can do about China, but I think it's really important not to aggravate China, not to aggravate um, the precedents um, and just maybe become the Norway of this, of Southeast Asia. That, that might be a tough sell to the Singapore folks, but maybe they like the comparison. Uh, Zinian Quack, uh, love talking a little bit of uh, power and economics and poverty and wealth generation with you. Uh, this is actually your second time on the program. It's just nobody got to see the first one because we had a little bit of a technical <laughs> glitch, but we're really glad you're back. Uh, look forward to talking to you in the future because China is obviously not going anywhere. Uh, Australia is one of our great partners in the world. We'll be talking to you in the future on these sorts of matters. Uh, let folks know where they can find you on things like social media and where you're writing and what you've got going on. Absolutely. Um, well, you have like the like Twitter handle. Yep. <laughs> I I only use Twitter for um, economics stuff. Yeah. But don't worry, my name is really easy to find. It's really it's 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 quite a common name across um, Western countries. Yeah, uh, I practiced it before I said it with her and asked her if I was pronouncing it right because y'all know how well I pronounce names uh, in my hillbilly-ish. So uh, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your insight. And it's always fun to talk to you. Uh, first thing in the morning for us, evening for you because of the time difference. So thanks for the time, Quack. We really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You too. Thank you, man. Now let me see you go off like a ball. Oh, 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 oh